everybody, I'm the Woodmother, and this is Woodmother's Workshop, a low-budget, low-effort, low-quality practice podcast that I'm using to build my writing and audio production skills. I talk about my ongoing creative projects, mostly focusing on the research process for the story I'm writing, called Gate City Blues. Last week, I started off talking about some of the behind-the-scenes aspects of making this podcast, so I figured I might as well start this episode the same way and make it a pattern. For episode two, I wrote a script that ended up being roughly seven pages long, and that translated into about 26 minutes of audio. I'm going to try for a little bit longer than that this time. I think that 40 minutes is a good podcasting sweet spot. That should give me enough time to cover all the things I want to talk about without giving myself too much work in terms of editing. Speaking of editing, I once again used the Hokusai 2 app last week for my iPad, and I'm recording into that app right now as well. The audio quality was a lot better than the first episode when I recorded into the Notes app on my phone. I know that if I want to do some more robust audio editing, I should really do that on my computer instead of my iPad, so I've downloaded Audacity onto my laptop. Unfortunately, my laptop is very old and rickety, and it crashes a lot, so I'm a little bit hesitant about using Audacity, plus it seems like the kind of thing that has a big learning curve, and that makes me nervous, but I'm going to try to bite the bullet on that. My current recording setup consists of me sitting on the floor in my closet, and while it's admittedly an improvement from sitting on my bed, there's still a lot of fuzzy white noise in the background, and I don't know how to get rid of that. Uh, Is that something I can edit out after the fact, or do I just need to invest in a proper microphone? I honestly know so little about audio editing that I don't even know what search terms to look for in order to figure this stuff out, so if you have any advice, I'd really appreciate it. Now, on to my research updates. This week, I tried to take all of the story notes from the Notes app on my phone and collect them into a single Google Doc, because I wanted to make sure it would be easy to find what I was looking for in the future, and that's not easy to do when all my ideas are spread throughout 12 different iPhone notes, especially when there are so many different kinds of notes. Episode title ideas, lists of characters, potential research books to look up later, stream of consciousness ramblings, memories from my childhood, all collected over the past several months. Not to mention all the notes I keep in the writer's log channel of my Discord server. I uh, uh, don't have a lot of faith in my memory, so I'm constantly worried that if I come up with a good idea and note it down in my phone, a month from now my notes will have ended up so disorganized that I won't be able to find it again. Or worse, I'll find it, but I won't be able to really understand my thought processes from a month prior. I feel a little bit unmoored within the chronology of time, as though any given iteration of myself at any point in time is totally cut off from all the other versions. The book Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents talks about this phenomenon as a symptom of childhood trauma, but I also have autism and ADHD, so it's hard to know why I feel that way. All I can be sure of is that I carry the fear that I won't just forget good ideas I had in the past, but that I'll also lose the memory of who I was. So I have to put extra work into remembering things, but I have to make sure I'm not getting obsessive about it. Otherwise, I'll never throw anything away or delete anything in case I need to review it later. So the challenge comes in deciding which information is worth keeping and how to best format it to make it easily accessible to all of the future versions of myself. Like, for example, every so often I completely overhaul the taxonomy of my Pinterest boards. I have a lot of historical costuming pins, and they used to be sorted in pin boards by different categories of garment, 
one board for underclothes, another for corsets, another for petticoats, etc. So what I'll do is I'll spend a few hours or maybe a few days re-sorting all of those thousands of pins into different categories, maybe this time based on time period or difficulty level or relevance to my interests or some other scheme, and then a year or two later I'll do the same thing all over again. The jury's still out as to whether this is actually useful, but I feel compelled to do it anyway. So, a few days ago I tried to do the same thing with my story notes. Uh, I tried to sort them into categories and then resort those categories in a way that made sense. First, I tried headings of different research topics like vaudeville, Harlem Renaissance, anthropology, Atlanta history. But then I kept wondering, what about notes that fall into more than one category? Like that book, Highbrows, Hillbillies, and Hellfire, about public entertainment in Atlanta from 1880 to 1930. Then I tried putting the notes in chronological order. Then I tried to differentiate between notes about my research versus notes about the actual plot of the story versus excerpts from the books I'm reading. This was one of those times where I considered re-downloading that app I used to make databases, because this sort of information doesn't work well in lists. You need to be able to cross-reference by date, topic, level of significance, all these different qualities. But Knowing me, I'd get distracted for the next week trying to design the ideal database and will have forgotten completely to actually work on the story. So, I had to decide which was more important to me. Having all the information sorted into a grand, unified scheme, or just making the act of trying to make sense of my notes slightly more accessible. In the end, I pretty much left most of the notes in their original groupings, but I gave them each headings, like chapter title ideas, settings, quotes, etc. And on Google Drive, I can see all of the headings in the sidebar, and I think that's probably the most important thing. I don't have the best object permanence, so if I can see all the headings at once without having to scroll through the document, that's probably just as useful as having some sort of grand unified system where everything is in nested categories that all make sense. Besides, the act of going through my notes and trying to figure out which sets of information were thematically related to each other was in itself useful for reminding me of the contents of the notes. Even though I didn't come away with the correct or ideal sorting scheme, I refamiliarized myself with my thought processes and better integrated my notes into my memory, so it wasn't all for nothing. I actually uh, get the same way about writing scripts for this podcast, as a matter of fact. I'll try to make an outline for all the things I want to talk about and then sort those topics into the correct order and then make little nested subheadings, etc., etc. That's the way I got used to writing out my ideas back when I was in school. But at some point, the process of trying to figure out the best way to sort everything becomes in itself so stressful that I just shut down. So as an alternative to that... I just start writing down my thoughts, stream of consciousness style, and then worry later on about trying to make it make sense. Rewriting it later uh, is sometimes a challenge if it's just a bunch of stream of consciousness ramblings, but it's better than nothing, whatever it takes to actually get words on the page. Uh, This whole situation actually reminds me of a story I once heard about a ceramics class. After doing some digging, I found out that That little anecdote comes from the book Art and Fear by David Bales and Ted Orland. 
The ceramics teacher announced on opening day that he was dividing the class into two groups. All those on the left side of the studio, he said, would be graded solely on the quantity of work they produced. All those on the right, solely on its quality. His procedure was simple. On the final day of class, he would bring in his bathroom scales and weigh the work of the quantity group. 50 pound pots rated an A, 40 pounds a B, and so on. Those being graded on quality, however, needed to produce only one pot, albeit a perfect one, in order to get an A. Well, came grading time, and a curious fact emerged. The works of highest quality were all produced by the group being graded for quantity. It seems that while the quantity group was busily churning out piles of work and learning from their mistakes, the quality group had sat theorizing about perfection and in the end had little more to show for their efforts than grandiose theories and a pile of dead clay. That whole story is very much in line with the idea that you shouldn't be afraid to be bad at things. That's something I have to work extra hard to remember because I like to overthink things. That's why I dropped out of college twice, because I would overthink my essay assignments so much that I'd be too mentally paralyzed to actually write them. I was afraid that no matter how hard I tried, my best wouldn't be good enough, would never live up to the platonic ideal of my own work that lived in my head, and I ended up sabotaging myself. But I can't let that fear prevent me from growing as an artist. Building my muscle memory, as it were, by making bad art is the only way I'll be able to get consistent, high-quality results later on. Uh, what else have I been up to? I've been reading quite a few books this week. Quite a few books at the same time, actually, because for some reason, whenever I get 60% of the way through a book, I get distracted and start a new one instead of finishing it. But sometimes that can be useful like when the books have themes that tie into each other. For example, this week I'm reading Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents by Lindsay C. Gibson, Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men by Lundy Bancroft, and The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter. And I've found that themes of entitlement, narcissism, and the desire to exert control over others all feature heavily in each of those books. I mentioned adult children of emotionally immature parents earlier when I was talking about my relationship to the passage of time. I read several excerpts from that book on TikTok over the past few days, and they seem to really resonate with people because those posts really blew up. If you've been following me for a while, you'll know that I grew up with a narcissistic father, and that features really heavily in my story, Gate City Blues. I'm also mixed, and I've found it to be a really complex experience when you grow up as a non-white person with a white parent and that parent also suffers from narcissism, mental illness, and toxic masculinity. There are a lot of overlapping layers of privilege and entitlement and delusion that are difficult to parse through, especially when you see reflections of that parent's behavior in yourself but have neither the male privilege nor the white privilege like they do to shield you from the consequences of impulsive or immature choices. So part of my journey and part of my character Cora's journey is trying to understand why my father is the way that he is so that I can identify the parts of him that I have inherited, both good and bad. My father is a white man and even though now I consider myself to be non-binary for most of my life, I understood myself to be a woman of color. 
I mean, I'll still call myself a woman for the sake of argument. I'm a woman in the same way that Bernie Sanders is a Democrat. Like, not really, but if you have to put it on a form. (laughs) But at any rate, the way that the world treats white male baby boomers and the way that it treats queer female adjacent people of color is very different. So it's been interesting to see that the traits he and I share lead to completely different reactions. Something else that's been interesting is the awareness of my own fear of talking about this. There's a part of me that's afraid of talking about my trauma publicly in case my dad finds my podcast or my TikTok account. The worst part is I'm not afraid that he'll be angry at me for speaking about him negatively. The thing I fear most is that if I know he's seen my work, there's still a small part of my soul that will want to know whether or not he's proud of me. Part of me still longs for his approval, and I'm afraid of admitting that to myself. Afraid that there's still part of me that's a compliant little 11-year-old, eager to please, glad to let him use me as his accomplice for his magic tricks because the high that he got from getting praise and applause from strangers was the only time I saw him genuinely happy. And I would much, much, much rather believe that I'm stronger than that now, but I don't want to test it. And so that unease, that fear manifests as this sense of foreboding or paranoia that I'm being watched whenever I talk about childhood trauma. But I want other people who have experienced similar things to be able to hear my story and know that they're not alone. So that's what I try to keep at the forefront of my mind. I want to be able to point people in the direction of resources that they can use for their own healing or to open up these difficult dialogues so that they can break their own cycles of childhood trauma. That got a little more personal than I was anticipating, so I'm going to pivot back around to the book The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter. Painter is not only a professor of American history at Princeton University, but she's also a black woman, which I feel is significant to the nuance of her writing. It's important to read black authors writing about black topics, obviously, but it's also crucial to read black and other non-white perspectives when reading about traditionally white fields such as European history. Her status as an outsider to the phenomenon she's studying gives her insight that wouldn't have been evident to someone who had been raised within the system of whiteness to view whiteness as the default. Now, I wanted to give a little book report on it this week, but I haven't finished it yet. I've been reading it out loud on TikTok Live, one chapter at a time, but there's still like 17 chapters left. I could wait until I finish the book and have a whole episode devoted to it. That would be consistent with my original plan to read one book per week and therefore talk about one book per podcast episode, or I can give weekly updates a few chapters at a time. That will probably be the best at helping me remember things along the way, but it doesn't fit my preconceived ideas about the ideal structure of the podcast episodes, but hey, we're all about taking the long way around with figuring out what works. I don't need to have each little episode be a neat, self-contained little book report. Heck, there's still a lot of stuff I haven't talked about from my vaudeville research from last week. Technically, I haven't even finished reading that book, No Applause, Just Throw Money, because I haven't decided whether or not it'll be worth it to slug through the rest of the book. But I've been really enjoying 
the history of white people and there's so much great content in it that I want to make sure I do it justice but it's just so dense with information that it's hard to choose what to talk about and I don't want to misrepresent any of the facts with my limited understanding. Um, I think I'll just go over some of my earliest impressions of the first few chapters uh, and then when I finish the book I'll be able to give a more in-depth and holistic analysis. So to start with, the book begins with chapters on ancient Greece and Rome. It's important to remember that the ancient Greeks and Romans weren't white because the concept of whiteness hadn't been invented yet. Our ideas about what race actually is have only taken their familiar form within the past few hundred years. But the way that the Greeks and Romans wrote about their neighbors, like the Celts, Gauls, Scythians, and Germanic tribes, were really important to race theorists of the 18th century German Romanticism movement. The Greeks and Romans thought of people in terms of ethnicities or tribal groups instead of broad racial categories, but even that was very different than the way we think about these things today. In chapter 1, Greeks and Scythians, Painter writes, Ancient Greeks did not think in terms of race. Later translators would put that word in their mouths. Instead, they thought of place. Greek scholars focused on climate to explain human difference. Humors arising from each climate's relative humidity or aridness explained a people's temperament. Where the seasons do not change, people were labeled placid. Where seasons shift dramatically, their dispositions were said to display wildness, unsociability, and spirit. For frequent shocks to the mind impart wildness, destroying tameness and gentleness. Those words come from Hippocrates' airs, waters, and places. For Hippocrates, topology and water determine body type, leading to differences between peoples of bracing high terrain and those in low-lying meadows. Lowlanders he posited as broad, fleshy, and black-haired. They themselves are dark rather than fair, less subject to phlegm than to bile. People living where the water stands stagnant must show protruding bellies and enlarged spleens, whatever that means. By contrast, those confined to places where the soil is thin and dry and the seasons change dramatically will be hard in physique and well-braced, fair rather than dark, stubborn and independent in character and temper. For where the changes of the seasons are most frequent and most sharply contrasted, there you will find the greatest diversity in physique, in character, and in constitution. These same ideas are reiterated by Roman general Tacitus in his work commonly known as Germania, in which he praises the Germanic tribes for their warlike nature and masculinity. The inhabitants of Germania have existed as a distinct and pure people, resembling only themselves. Consequently, they also all have the same physical appearance, fierce blue eyes, tawny hair, bodies that are big but strong only in attack. And why are the Germani pure? not out of any furious ethnic pride, but because they live in a place no one else wants. For who would abandon Asia or Africa or Italy and seek out Germany, with its unlovely landscape and harsh climate, if it were not one's own native land? Once again, we see the idea that the land itself determines ethnic characteristics, and there are two important points that follow up this idea. The first is that it's a little bit easier to understand now why the Roman Empire was so good at assimilating people. If they captured foreigners and brought them back home, 
and then those people had children, the fact that those children were born and raised on Roman soil gave them Roman qualities, and therefore they were Roman, regardless of where their parents had been from. It's super fascinating to see how differently people viewed concepts like race and ethnicity before they understood genetics and heredity and basic biology. The second important point is that the writings of the ancient Greeks and Romans on the Germanic tribes would become crucial later on to the 18th century race theorists like Christoph Miners and Charles Villiers of the German Romanticism movement at the University of Göttingen. They believed that there was an inherent quality of Germanic peoples that made them the natural inheritors of the true spirit of Western civilization that had previously belonged to the Greeks and Romans. According to wealthy French aristocrat Anne-Louise Germain Necker de Stael, whose 1810 book On Germany introduced the works of those German race theorists to British intellectual circles for the first time, the proud Germanic and Teutonic races, Germans, Swiss, English, Swedes, Danes, and Dutch, had long successfully resisted Roman conquest and Christianization. In the process, Germans had grown more adept at abstract thought than Latins. Painter goes on to explain that until the turn of the 19th century, the genealogy of European genius and the source of its power had run directly back through the French Enlightenment and the Italian Renaissance to Greco-Roman antiquity. Villiers, de Stael, and their followers took another path. In their view, it was medieval northern European paganism that fueled the fire of 19th century greatness. Paradoxically, perhaps, enthusiasm for the Dark Ages and its pagan barbarians increased as Northern Europe grew richer and more powerful. The aftermath of those 18th and 19th century ideas could be felt throughout the decades of German unification and 20th century pan-Germanism, which fed directly into the ideology of the German National Socialist Party, better known to us today as the Nazi Party. And we can still see the effects of those ideas 200 years later in the way that modern-day neo-Nazis fetishize Norse and Viking culture. There is so much more information just in the first few chapters of that book that it's difficult to choose what to highlight. But I really wanted to emphasize just how much historical context Painter provides for the way we think about race and the way that has changed over time. She not only identifies the individuals who first published ideas that feed into white supremacy, such as the man who first used the term Caucasian to refer to the white race in general, but she traces those ideas through the centuries and shows who translated those ideas into other languages, who wrote reviews of those works, and how those ideas spread across continents to form our modern-day conceptions of race. I'm only about halfway through the book right now, but I can't wait to learn more. This is as good a time as any to take a break and talk about some ways you can help support the show. And after that, I'll talk about my plans for my research going forward, and we'll end with this week's Society Slants. I have to come up with a cute name for this little ad section, because I instinctively think of it in my head as the money zone. <laughs> but that's kind of a problem. Uh, I have to think of a new name, because that one's already taken. First off, you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, and Patreon as The Woodmother, all one word. If you'd like to subscribe to me on Patreon, you'll get access to my Woodmother's Cottage Discord server, which, in addition to being a great community full of very cool people, 
is where I write all of my research notes in a log and regularly chat about my story progress. Woodmother stickers are for sale now in my Etsy shop. So far, I've sold 10 since last week, and the money from those sticker sales is going to go towards a proper microphone as well as books for my research. If you'd like to get me one of the books for my wish list, I've linked it down below in the description. The next ones I'd like to read are Ragged But Right, Black Traveling Shows, Coon Songs on the Dark Pathway to Blues and Jazz by Lynn Abbott and Doug Seroff, Barrel House Blues, Location Recording and the Early Traditions of the Blues by Paul Oliver, and The Last Greatest Magician in the World by Jim Steinmeier. Those are all listed on my Amazon wishlist in the order in which I plan to read them. I want to say thank you to Cat B at DreamweaverCat from TikTok for buying two books off my wishlist for me. Everybody has a podcast except you by the McElroy Brothers and The New Negro, Voices of the Harlem Renaissance by Alan Locke. I really appreciate it and I can't wait to read them. I also want to thank some more of my Patreon patrons, Billy Lark, Joanna, Kate, Marielle Flugelman, and Ananarama. Thank you guys for all your support. So, let's talk about my plans for my research. There are currently 20 more books on my list. If I read one book per week, then that means it'll still be at least 20 more weeks until I'll feel ready to start writing the story as opposed to just writing about the story. There's just so much historical context that I feel like I have to know before I even start chapter one. I'm trying to research in roughly chronological order, starting with books about the vaudeville era and its magicians, and then the history of black music, then Atlanta history, early 20th century black history, and then finally I'll read the books of the Harlem Renaissance figures that my character Cora will be writing to. The story Gate City Blues is going to be told via letters written by Cora to her colleagues and friends, which means literary figures like Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, and Nella Larson are essentially going to be side characters in the story, or at the very least, serve as audience stand-ins. So I want to have a well-rounded understanding of who they were as people and as artists in order to make sure I'm not misrepresenting their legacies. So I feel like I can't really write the story until I'm ready to, however nebulous that is. I don't want to start writing letters to Zora Neale Hurston before I, as the author, really know her and who she was in the year 1928. And I feel like I can't do that until I first researched the time period as a whole. And I feel like I can't do that until I understand the time period right before that one. And you see, you see where I'm going. Cora's story begins with her arrival in Atlanta in early August 1928. And I'm planning for each episode to cover about a week in her time. So I'm considering aiming to premiere the show in August and following Cora week by week in real time, as it were. That should give me enough time to plan. It's more than 20 weeks away, which gives me time for all the books on my list. So I've got to be committed to not procrastinating on the reading. I, uh, I want her story to feel rooted in the current events of her time. So I've been working on finding newspaper archives from 1928. The Atlanta Daily World the paper that the Society Slants come from, opened up in 1928, coincidentally, the same day that Cora arrives in town. But the earliest digitized copies that are available are from late 1931. The other black newspaper that preceded the world was called the Atlanta Independent, but I don't think that's been digitized yet. 
I'm pretty sure my only option might be viewing it on microfiche and that's going to be a whole process to try to get access to that, so I'll keep you updated. The Atlanta Constitution and the Atlanta Journal were the popular white newspapers of the day, and I'm fairly certain they've been digitized, but I think I'll have to pay for a subscription to newspapers.com in order to view those archives. The reason I'm so interested in historical newspapers is because real events give me a sort of scaffolding off which I can build my story. I can get lost in the abstraction of a blank page, trying to invent scenarios whole cloth. So being able to place real events on a timeline gives me something solid and grounding that I can work off of. For me, it's kind of like tracing a photograph in order to make a watercolor painting of it. I find sketching human figures to be really difficult, and the proportions never seem to look right. But I don't want that to prevent me from making the art I want to make. And there's no art police who are going to slap my hands with a ruler if I trace it, so... So what if some people think tracing is cheating? Work harder, not... Wait, no. <laughs> Work smarter, not harder. <laughs> no reason to be ashamed of tracing. So, I get the rough outline of my work from an outside source, and then I decide how I want to color it in, and how I'm going to use those building blocks to create something new. And so far... The best anchor point I've found to ground me in that time period has been the Society Slants gossip column. And with that, friends and enemies, the moment we've all been waiting for. Society Slants by Lucius Jones, dated December 4th, 1931. Folk, the Bama Collegians are back! Atlanta Society will get another chance to hear those nationally famous Bama State Collegians tomorrow night, and you can bet your sweet life this maniac, who has no better sense than to copy 400 names to appear in a write-up, will be there scribbling for his Wednesday slants. The gay fellers of the house are again fostering the affair and feel that rain or shine, 400 members of local society will be out. Last Saturday, after almost all of the 400 out had proclaimed the boys about the best they had heard, Bolden, leader of the band, told the slantsmen that they had been decidedly off-color. He stated that they had arrived late and had rushed into the orchestra annex and played without eating a bite. That the band leader spoke the truth can easily be verified by the scores of young and old who arrived early only to find the collegians had not reached the casino yet. According to Bolden, the boys would arrive early this time and show the Atlanta Society folk what they really can do. Take it from a maniac, if those blatant jazz vendors were off and played the way they did last Saturday night, then they must... Now this word looks like H-L. Show enough! Um, and I have no idea what that word is supposed to be. Like, I mean, ostensibly it's some sort of curse word, and like, hell would fit there, I guess, but that just makes no sense contextually. Then they must... Hell? show enough? I have no idea. The Bascom brothers, Hawkins, Jimmy Mitchell, and company can go. Turkey Day morning, Miss Geraldine Mitchell pitched a swell little breakfast affair at her home on Lena Street Southwest. The maniac was unable to get out, but according to many of the members of the clientele who were there, there was fun galore. The horse callers proffered a breezy get-together at the home of Mrs. Leanna Smith, 28 Ashby Street Northeast, simultaneously. Both affairs packed collegiate throngs, with Mr. Harold Streeter, a Chicago visitor and former member of local society, being in attendance. 
The peacock charmers staged that much-talked-of annual last Monday night, and fun held complete sway. More than 300 members of the social realm trekked out and lost their identity in the mirth. For three hours, old Epicurus did his dirt and left the rest to his good old running mate Pluto, who is sometimes styled as Mephistopheles or Satan. That's just a weird thing to say, Lucius. Like, no offense, but that's just a weird thing to say. J. Neil Montgomery, popularly styled the Professor of Torrid Tunes, was at the piano and flaunted a revamped core of jazz peddlers who were highly sepia. And if you don't know what sepia means in that sense, ask any New Yorker. Uh, I just want to note two things before we move on. The first of which is, uh, I looked, I tried to find what the word sepia meant as slang, you know, to New Yorkers, and I can find no record of it, ever. Um, so part of me thinks he might have just made it up to sound cool. <laughs> uh, the second thing is that J. Neil Montgomery, uh, who he describes as a professor of torrid tunes, uh, I actually found a lot of information about him in the book uh, Black Atlanta in the Roaring Twenties. He was the band director at Booker T. Washington High School, and later on in the 40s and 50s, I think he actually ran Sunset Casino, and he was responsible for booking a lot of acts to perform in different Atlanta venues. So, just a fun fact about Mr. Montgomery. Numbered among the Epicureans were Mr. and Mrs. Charles Griffin, who refused to let married life keep them out of their rightful niche in the doings of the younger set. Mrs. Griffin is the former Miss Ruth Harris of Simpson Street, Northwest, while Charlie is a man about town too well known in the world to be reintroduced. Like this happy couple, Mr. and Mrs. E. T. Lundy also had carloads of fun. Incidentally, Mrs. Lundy is a sister of young-ish Mrs. Griffin. Now what's wild to me is that I know that, like, saying young Mrs. Griffin is a normal thing to say. Um, saying young-ish Mrs. Griffin... Not so much. That feels a little backhanded, Lucius. <laughs> the others entailed Mrs. Trifenius Anderson, Euphremia Kennedy, Lois Thomas, Gladys Ellison, Letitia Johnson, Alice Pearson, Ruby Stanfield, Geraldine Allen, Mexico Hembry, Louise Harris, Rosebud Brown, Evelyn Slaughter, Gertrude Daniels, Caroline Weaver, Nancy Foster, M.B. Weaver, Sally Pearson, Etta Reese, Marion English, Hattie Thomas, Dorothy Patrick, Clara Moss, Inez Floyd, Geraldine Mitchell. Well, Geraldine Mitchell sure gets around, doesn't she? That, sorry, that was my editorializing. <laughs> Ella Mae Wilkins, Hazel Stinson, Hazel Hill, Mabel Hinton, Grethel Smith, not Gretel, Grethel. Evelyn Roberts, and Madame's Daisy Miles, Jesse Kimball, Flora Jones-Martin, and Vivian Gray. Miss Willie B. Jackson, looking sepia, was out again. Mrs. Alice Pearson and Ruby Stanfield stepped out in the prettiest gowns of the night. Miss Pearson wore an imposing azure blue lace, while Miss Stanfield flashed a black satin that played tag with the brilliant glare from the spotlight within. Among the lesser breeds were such disturbing elements as Thomas Borders, Henry White, Pap Ward, Mackenzie Jones, Jerry Payton, John McCauley, Joe Comer, Eugene White, Dynamite Mitchell, okay, I love that name, Robert Bronner, Shepard Turner, Charles Faison, Collier and Bo Kazin, 
Connor and Harry Parks, Lucius Hart, Willie Wynn, Jeremy White, Brick Johnson, John C. Britton, Frank Hill, Booty Clemen, spelled B-O-O-T-E-E. I'm assuming it's Booty and not Booty, because that would be a weird name. Clarence Davis, Jimmy Perry, Robert Harris, Jack Carmichael, Horace Wilson, Herman Simpkins, Jesse Burney, Dick Walton, Charles Rogers, Archie Smith, Jimmy Hembry. I wonder if he's related to Mexico Hembry. Probably. Hewlett Hall, Walter Jones, George Finley, Leroy Miles, and Hog Holmes. Miss Eula Brown was there in black satin. Lots of black satin going around tonight. Delta Epsilon Beta entertained Turkey Day morn with a breakfast dance from 6 till 10 at the home of Miss Ginny Weaver, president of the club. The guests were Mrs. Serethia Brown, Maggie Brown, Sally Love, Catherine Cox, Bessie Wilson, Christine Lewis, Louise Harris, Ruby Stanfield, Lugenia Milford, Clara Brown, Irene King, and Messrs. Roy Jones, J. Thomas Fagan, Thomas Love, James Gaston, Sam Clark, Julius Minifield, Gary Kinricks, Thomas Stewart, Donald Woods, James Dorsey, Robert Tyson of Chicago, and any number of others. The Washington High School faculty has organized a male chorus. Feeling it would be a grave injustice to their voices should they not breathe forth once more with some of those melodious songs which pleased the student bodies during their undergraduate days, the blue and white men got together and did things. As a result of their enterprising, the following officers have been corralled. William W. Jackson and J.T. Brooks, aides. Marcellus R. Tustel, president. Myron B. Towns, pianist. Cleo P. Coates, secretary. Y.E. Rogers, treasurer. Reuben M. Taylor, librarian. And Myron B. Towns, business manager. Myron B. Towns is also the pianist, and I wonder why he didn't just say that he was two things instead of listing his name twice. The pedagogues will stage a very interesting program this season, the main feature of which will be a concert. Other members of the organization are S.H. Archer Jr., Leslie C. Baker, Marcus J. Beavers, A. Walter Childs, Charlie D. Clark, C.N. Cornell, Samuel L. Davis, G.R. Higginbotham, E.T. Lewis, Lucius H. Martin, J. Neal Montgomery, hey, there's our pal, L. Neal, J.B. Prather, S.J. Saxton, Joel Smith, and W.R. Wilkes. The organization also boasts of a basketball team of some note. That does it for the Society Slants, and that also does it for this episode. Thank you to Soraya Peregrine for writing and performing the theme song for the podcast, and thank you all for listening. I hope I catch you again next week. Uh, what was the sign-off that we agreed on last time? We got it from last week's Society Slants. Oh yeah, keep eyes and ears peeled for more developments.